Let's invite you to take your Bibles and open to the book of Galatians, not Ephesians, this afternoon. Rather Galatians, and we're going to just do a mini-series for the month of January uh, on church foundations. Um, so uh, I, I really do believe that it is good sometimes to, to do an annual rotation between series that we need to hear regularly. Things like um, a series on family, we'll definitely do that as well, and series on finances and things like that, and also church. Um, things that we tend to deal with um, on a more regular basis that the average preaching through books of the Bible might not address as often as we would have liked them to, that uh, we need to grow in. So, um, so this afternoon we're going to start with the three, uh, or just two Ds for this church, uh, discipleship, and then uh, Lord, this is part one of that, next, next week also another discipleship, on finishing this text. And then just one sermon or perhaps two sermons on church discipline as well, just to remind us of that topic and to prepare us for not um, if it will happen to us, but when we will have to be ready to be faithful to the Lord and do that very, very hard thing to be a healthy church for His name's sake. But for now, let's focus our hearts and attention on Galatians 6. And let's read together from verse 1 up until verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. To read, that's the reading of God. So let's pray together. Father, we submit ourselves to you this afternoon and especially under your word that is a double-edged sword that cuts into us and often hurts us. But Lord, as it hurts us, it also heals us and makes us more like Christ. And Lord, I pray that that will be the effect of your word this afternoon on us. Lord, I, I also pray that you will please protect me from laying... Um, any legalistic burdens on your people. Lord, I pray that the only burden that people will feel in this sermon will be the burden of Christ that is light and easy to carry. I pray that we would lovingly um, follow Christ in his example to bear one another's burdens and show us and teach us how to do that and what that looks like, even in this afternoon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe God's method to grow his church is to disciple, to disciple people. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So to make a disciple means someone that is committed to Jesus wholeheartedly. Someone who obeys Jesus. But here's what makes discipleship so difficult and so tough is to make disciples takes time. It's not a quick fix. It's not a quick hit and run and now you're fixed and let's move on to the next person. No, it takes time. To make disciples takes effort. To make disciples includes sacrifice from our side. To make disciples means that we have to count other people more significant than ourselves. In other words, to make disciples, we need to be like Jesus, who was willing, like we saw in Philippians 2 at the Christmas series, to leave heaven, to leave our comfort zones, to leave our positions of glory, and 
go down towards where people need, need it. So here's the big problem. A church that becomes lazy, a church that becomes content with not serving, a church that becomes self-focused instead of other-focused, a church that is not willing to give up its time, money, effort, and their personal preferences will die. Will die. Will die a slow death. Like the Dead Sea, if there's only a channel coming in, if we are only growing fat on receiving, but there's no channels moving outward, there will be no life. There will be no growth and we will, there will be no thriving as a church. On the contrary... On the opposite extreme, if you see a church that is growing spiritually and numerically as God adds to his church, as people are saved and discipled, you may be sure that someone in that church has died. Someone has died. Someone has given up their lives to disciple someone, to move out in obedience. Where there is life, there is always death. Spirit, I'm speaking spiritually now. So there can be no life within a church without the willingness to die. To take up our cross and follow Christ. Isn't that what you would like for this church? Isn't that what we want to see as in Porchev's term? To lay down our lives for people here. That they might know Christ and be growing in Him and know the truth. Before I move on into the text and what this text means. Let me just be honest at the front of this sermon. As I was preparing for this sermon. I realized I have become content with no growth. I have become lazy in my prayer life for other people. I have become all too focused on my little comfort and my little kingdom and my little dreams and my little world. So this sermon really was for me. This, so whatever I will say to you, don't ever think that I have nailed this and I'm done. No, this is something I need to repent of. We're all sitting under the word of God this afternoon. And that's why I want us to have that open heart to listen. What does the Spirit want to teach you and help you to lead in your life? Now, this text shows us what a spiritful church looks like. How does a spiritful church treat another sinning Christian? So when they sin within the church, how would that uh, a grace-filled, gospel-centered, spiritful church move towards that person? Now, our structure actually seems to contradict itself. Because in verse 2, look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But in verse 5, he says the opposite. He says in verse 5, we will each have to bear our own load, our own burden. Okay, so which one is it now, Paul? Is it, should we carry one another's burdens or should we carry our own burdens? Can we make up our mind? Of course, Paul is not quickly forgetting while he's writing. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that outline of burdens we should share and burdens we have to carry our own is intentional. And both of them are necessary to do the one another. So this is what this means. Paul is actually saying, verse 1 and 2, we need to lower ourselves and love one another by sharing our burdens, carrying one another's burdens. But verses 3 to 5 shows us that we shouldn't be so proud to think that we are somebody by comparing ourselves with one another because we will have to bear our own load on judgment day. On judgment day, you are not going... No one is going to be able to carry your burden. Not your pastor, not your parent, not your husband, your wife, your children, nobody. You will have to give an account for yourself. Now, of course, the good news is that we will have an advocate. <laughs> Jesus Christ, the righteous, who has died for us. So even on that day, Christ has already bore our burden of sin. 
and therefore we don't have to fear, but we have to be humble and willing to restore one another with gentleness because we realize judgment day is coming and I will be judged for my sins and that's why I will restore my brother and sister. So that's the outline. That's what Paul is trying to say. So verses 1 and 2 can be summarized like this. Love one another by sharing burdens. And verses 3 to 5 says, be humble because you will have to carry your own burden. That's a summary of the entire passage. Now this emphasis, you'll notice Paul is emphasizing humility. right? He says, with gentleness, keep you watching yourself. And remember, don't think you are somebody when you are nothing. Because of the book it is written in. This is not a trick question. In what book is this written in? Galatians. Okay. Now, <laughs> Galatians, what is happening in this book is that there were false teachers named Judaizers. And you can probably figure out what Judaizers mean. They want to Judaize people. They want to bring them back to Judaism. They say, okay, Jesus was great to begin your salvation, but now you need to be circumcised. Now you need to go back to the law of Moses. Now you need to focus on keeping the law and then you will be righteous before God. Then God will justify you and you can be sure that you will make it to heaven. And Paul aggressively opposes that. Look at chapter 1 verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As, I have said, as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is saying it doesn't matter who is telling you a different gospel. Even if in your room alone, an angel appears and says, you know that gospel you've been hearing at church and the gospel that's proclaimed in the scriptures? That's wrong. Here is the true gospel. Let him be accursed. Even if we, if I, Paul, if I, Pastor Ryan, if I, whoever stands before you and preaches a different gospel, let him go to hell. That's what that means when he says, let him be accursed. Let him go to hell. That's how Paul feels. That's how God feels about his gospel. There's only one gospel, right? And the main point of the book can be summarized with one verse, chapter 2, verse 16. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he says three times, Faith in Christ, believed in Christ, justified by faith in Christ. Do you get the point of the book? Not by works, faith in Christ. That's in short, Jesus is enough. Jesus and Jesus alone is our Savior. You don't need anyone else or any works else to take you to heaven. Christ is enough. Listen, if you were able to save yourself, if you were able to be righteous and go to heaven with your works, why did Jesus come? Why would it have been necessary for him to come if you could have been good enough on your own to take you to heaven? So that's what this whole point is. And this is the amazing good news of the, of the gospel is you don't have to clean up yourself with your own willpower, your own effort. No, God in his grace sent his son to clean us up. He came to wash us clean with the blood of his son. And you receive that forgiveness through faith alone. Simply looking to Jesus. Simply trusting Him. That's it. It's almost too good to be true, right? 
But that is the truth. And the irony of that is once you embrace that gospel, your heart changes. God takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh, and you start obeying the law of love, which is the law of Christ. We're going to look at that later. So that's the context of the book. And the reason why that context is so critical to chapter 6 is because of this. People who want to be self-righteous and justified by works of the law will not be gentle with other sinning Christians. They won't be. Someone who thinks they are righteous by their law-keeping will never seek and save the lost or the wandering or the hurting sheep of Jesus. They will be like the Pharisees that won't carry a single burden but will only add burdens to people. Remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23 Verse 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They don't carry burdens, they give burdens. They will be harsh, aggressive, quickly angered, and think of themselves as better than others. They will pray like the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11. Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Instead of rejoicing with God and the heavens and the angels over one sinner that repents, they will have a good riddance attitude. Finally, that sinner is out of here. I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that person anymore. They cannot reflect the godly attitude of Psalm 119, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. You see the, the, other, the opposite attitude of a good riddance. It's, it's a weeping, weeping over God's name being dishonored, weeping over God's glory, God's kingdom being, in, being dragged in the mud when people leave Christ. Those who are self-righteous will be characterized, ironically, by works of the flesh and not by works of the Spirit. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. 5, verse 19, the, the near context. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these holier than thou, those who think that they are holy by their own works, will be full of fighting, full of rivalry, full of anger, full of slandering. And in, the irony of that is they will do it all in the name of God. Oh, I'm not gossiping. I just want to share this important prayer request. Can you believe that brother and that sister did this sin? I'm just filling you in that you can pray it in form. So they are gossiping and slandering in the name of God, in the name of spirituality, while they themselves feel so great about their own holiness. In other words, they won't have the heart of the Savior. They won't share anyone's burdens. That's what Jesus did. He didn't give burden. Yes, he has a burden in its light, but he carried our greatest burden. And what is that? Our sin. He carried the, great, the unbearable burden he carried to the cross. And now Christ calls us to imitate him, to share our burdens to carry one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ so but just to be clear this doesn't mean we should be soft on sin so don't hear when i say we should be gentle and humble and loving and gracious that sin is not that bad 
How do we know that we shouldn't be soft on sin? Well, God wasn't soft on sin. Look at the cross. He crushed his son for sin. It wasn't something that he treated lightly. And again, the same God shows his love for sinners on the same cross. The one who crushed his son did it for those he loves, for us. Instead of punishing us, he punished his son. Instead of sending us to hell, he crushed his son under his wrath. So that's, that's the same cross will help us not to fall on either extreme. of Either so gracious that we ignore sin, which was 1 Corinthians 5, right? Or not so, so against sin that we lose our grace and our gentleness, which is, the, which is Galatians. So again, being cross-centered will help us with both extremes. And here's the point of our passage, is that believers who are saved by grace will let that grace flow over to their fellow struggling brothers and sisters with sin. And the first way, this is on the outline, first way a gospel-centered, spiritual Christian will live like is to share burdens. We will share our burdens with other believers. And we see in that in verse 1. Look at verse 1. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, there are two people in this text. First, we see the struggling believer. The struggling believer. Notice the situation here. Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, the idea of the word caught implies that this brother or sister didn't see it coming. The sin has overtaken him or her, and before you could blink your eye, you are in a sin that you just can't seem to get out of. You're entangled, and you are struggling. As God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. And if we are not watchful and prayerful, before we know it, sin will pounce, and we will be slaves of sin, or we will be um, struggling and entangled with that sin. But notice something as well. Even though it's something that has caught you of God, you are still responsible for those actions because we are caught in what? Transgressions. What does that word imply? Actively disobeying God. Transgression has the idea of God has wisely put boundaries in our lives and placed the line and says, do not cross. But we say, no, I'm going to transgress. I'm going to cross that line, step over that line. I think I know better. So although this is something that might have caught you of God, it is still something you are culpable for. you still going to be judged and you still have a responsibility to repent. So it's not an excuse, but it's a reality. Okay, That's the point. This believer is caught in it. But here's the good news of this passage. God doesn't intend for you to deal with it alone. Right? That's the point. There are certain sins which are so entangling, so messy, so overpowering that it requires the help of Jesus' church to overcome it. Especially the spiritual person. We're going to look at that now. <clears throat> Let me list a few sins that might be like this, that just catches you off guard. Before you know it, you are in the sin. What about, think about sins like bitterness. Bitterness. That's a sin which can so easily overtake you and you don't even realize, you don't even know it. It's a deadly sin because no one wakes up one morning, I'm going to be bitter today. Today, I'm going to see who can I hold a grudge against. 
You not just wake up one Sunday like, okay, I'm going to go to church and the first person that ignores me, the first person that doesn't shake my hand, I'm done. No one plans that, right? That it's, it's, it's hard to choose to be bitter. It's really retained anger. You're angry with someone and then you let the sun go down on your anger and the next day it goes down on your anger and the next day and the next day before you know it, your heart is just full of bitterness. And the Bible actually calls bitterness a root. See to it that no one is captured by the root of bitterness. Do you see the, the idea? It's, it, it, it starts to plant itself deep in your heart. And bitterness literally means this. It literally means uh, having a bitter taste in your mouth towards someone. So when you think of someone, when you talk about someone, the only thing that comes out is anger and harsh words. You can't seem to talk highly of that person. And again, it has, it has caught you. It is, before you know it, it has overtaken your heart and you just can't seem to get yourself free from that bitterness. What about some sins like these? Uh, I want to call it simple sins, but sins that can, can catch you. Not coming to church for an extended period of time. I think especially in a, a time like COVID, a time like lockdown, this is an easy thing. Because one day, one day it was required not to go, and then it becomes entangling. It becomes, it becomes a habit. And before you know it, you just can't seem to break that habit to, to come to church. Hebrews 10 verse 25 says we should not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some for some it has become a habit it has caught them it is a transgression you didn't really plan you didn't just say okay from now on i'm never gonna you, know, you just like just started kind of happening it just became a little bit too convenient just just easier to rather watch online than to come now of course there are certain times when it's good when you can't come to church i'm not talking about those seasons when you're sick or when you have to work or things like that. I'm just talking about the habit and that sin that's catching you. What about another one? Unresolved conflict. Unresolved conflict. It's re related to bitterness, but in some relationships, especially marriages, there's a, there, be, there just grows that coldness between you and, and, and that person or you and your wife and your husband or another person. There's a, there's a lot of dirty laundry that just hasn't been washed for a while. It's just piles up and before you know you just start snapping at one another you just start and the person literally does nothing and you just find yourself irritated and angry and you snap with little provo provocation you are quickly angered harsh and bitter and again it didn't just happen instantly it happened slowly it was something that caught you off guard before you know like how did we get here how did we get to this place where we can't even see each other anymore it seems that that sinful words and actions in your marriage or your, or your relationship is just part of you now. And you don't know how to get out. You don't know how to break free. What about pornography? Another sin that starts small. You give in just a little. It starts in the mind. It starts in the fantasies. And before you know it, it, has, it becomes a sin you just can't seem to, to break free from. It controls you. Although every look is a choice, and that is your hope, you struggle it's always a choice again it seems to ask have caught you you are stuck and you you need help so that's this is the first christian and perhaps some of you listening to me is the number one person in this in this text you are the struggling believer but that leads us to the second point jesus in his grace has given us spiritual believers and um, the spiritual believer to seek to restore that brother or sister back to christ and he says notice our goal notice what we are aiming for in verse one what is the goal 
when we approach someone that is struggling with sin in verse 1? You who are spiritual should what? Restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. That Greek word is beautiful, restore. It, it comes, it's the same Greek word used in the Gospels when the disciples were mending their nets, restoring their nets. You see, so if something is broken and it's restored, so it can be used again. Think of, and it's a medical term also to, to put in a broken bone. So a bone is dislocated or broken and now you restore it so that you can use it again. You see, the picture is beautiful. Someone, when sin is catching you, you become useless for Christ. You can't serve, you can't give, you can't do anything. You are a broken Christian. And now I come as a Christian and I say, I want to help you. I want to restore the broken bone. I want to restore the broken net that you can work again, that you can be useful again, that you can serve Christ and His church. So that's our goal. And no, but notice what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say, if someone is caught in any transgression, judge him and remove him as quickly as you can from your midst. No. If someone is caught in any transgression, don't get too close, lest you too be caught in that same. No. That's also not what it says. Of course, when it's an unrepentant sin, and we work through the steps of Matthew 18 of church discipline, that's a different case. But in this case, we assume this brother is the wants to repent, but doesn't know how. No, the text says we must restore. It's a command. You cannot let this one go. You can't say, I'll give this one a skip. Or I'll let Pastor Rian deal with that one. <laughs> I'll let him worry about it. No, we love each other too much to see each other be caught in sin and our lives to be destroyed. So just to make it crystal clear, whose responsibility is it in this text to initiate that relationship? Is it the person struggling with the sin? Or is it the person that is spiritual and loves that brother or sister? Right? It's clear. Who must make the first phone call? Who must give the first WhatsApp? Who must first walk across the room? Who must first do the difficult thing to go to the person and say, hey, can we talk? The spiritual believer, not the struggling believer. Now, of course, I want to say that some, some sins you might, nobody might know about, right? They might be, you might be a struggling believer that nobody knows about, and you will have to confess that and bring that into the light. Now, that's a different situation. But in general, a healthy church will, will be so connected to one another, will be so loving that if we notice someone caught in some transgression, we would want to initiate that. So that's important. Um, in other words, this text confronts the following kind of attitudes. A good riddance attitude. A isolation attitude. A that's their problem attitude. A I can't believe that person would do that attitude. A he or she started it. I'm not going to go to that person first attitude. Okay. These attitudes are fleshly, worldly, childish. They are not the mind of Christ. They're not the character of Jesus. And we need to come to, to become like that. But this text also strongly argues to belong to a church, to be part of a church where you have that accountability. In other words, you can't, it's not good or healthy for Christians to be on their own and say, I'm going to do my fellowship with Jesus and my relationship with Jesus solo? No, it means that we need to belong to a church where we can carry one another's burdens. And 
I love this text because it shows different quali qualifications of different ways we are to be and how to restore this person. The first thing that's important is this, you must be spiritual. You must be a spiritual person to restore. Notice that, what it says in verse 1. You who are spiritual. Now what does that mean? In the context of chapter 5, it is clear Paul is thinking of those who are walking by the Holy Spirit. Look at chapter 5 verse 25. Just, just, just above. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So those who are filled with the Spirit will display the fruit of the Spirit in 5 verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what all Christians should be striving towards, to be controlled by God's Holy Spirit. So when we say a spiritual person, we're really just thinking of someone, a Christian, that is displaying the fruit of the Spirit, that is loving, that is joyful, that is peaceful, that is not contentious, that has genuine love for both God and other believers. In other words, if you come to restore, but you come with your own agenda, don't go. If you go to a brother or sister, not ruled with love, don't go. Don't go. Jesus says, first take out the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see. So there might be a time where you just have to reflect and just have to search your own heart and take out and ask God to fill you with His Spirit. But that's the first qualification to, be, to go to be restored, is you must be spiritual. Secondly, Paul highlights one of the fruit of the Spirit, which is essential, is gentleness. Gentleness. Look at verse 1 again. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So some people would like to say things like this. Well, people don't like what I say to them because I'm straight. I, I call a spade a spade and often people don't like me because I just tell them the truth, whether they like it, whether they like it or not. <laughs> right? That's exactly the opposite of what this text says we should do. Exactly the opposite. Again, it has that good riddance attitude, like I've just told them and now it's their problem. You're not lifting a finger to help that brother or sister in their burden. These people tend to be harsh, to harshly rebuke other Christians, as if it's a virtue, as if it's a good thing to just tell people how bad they are and to say to them, deal with it. Right? But they're doing the opposite. They're not gentle. And what does gentleness mean? Gentleness is the willingness to suffer without taking revenge. It's, it, it can also be translated as meekness, having power under control. I am willing to suffer for you without taking revenge. I will be gentle with you. It's really the attitude of Christ when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's meekness. He had all power to destroy them, and yet he desires their restoration. He desires their salvation. And for us, we should be the same. We should be gentle. The third way to restore someone is with humility. With humility. Look at verse 1 at the end. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. That's amazing. You don't come to someone, another Christian that's struggling with sin and say, how in the world could you do that sin? I would never do that. <laughs> You are a fool if you think like that. If you think like that. Because this text says we must be humble in realizing that the very sin we are confronting or wanting to restore is the very sin we are capable of tomorrow. 
That's the attitude. We come with that attitude, like this sin, I am capable. That's why Jesus said, watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. We need to be watchful. If we have that sleepiness of the disciples, think we're okay, that unpreparedness, we too would be scattered once temptation comes. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 gives a similar warning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So we help our brother and sister today because we might need the very help we have given tomorrow. That very brother or sister we have restored might be restoring you the following week. But that's what the gospel of grace will produce in you. You will say, but for the grace of God, there go I. You don't help out of that self-righteous pride, but you help out of deep humility that you too are a sinner capable of all sin, but by the grace of God. So we restore our struggling brother or sister in a spiritual way, in a gentle way, in a humble way, and lastly, in a loving way, with love. That's verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Notice, burdens, plural, not singular. Interesting. In the context of this, burdens here refers to the burdens from your sin. If you are caught in a sin, you will often have multiple problems. You see, sin rarely comes alone. Sin rarely just brings one friend. Once you are caught in one sin, you realize it destroys everything. You, you carry multiple burdens. And what, again, what is our response to when we see someone suffering under their burdens because of their sin? You deserve it. Right? You wanted to live in that sin? Now deal with it. Enjoy the pain. Okay? No. That's not what we say. We don't find pleasure in someone's pain. We feel compassion. We feel compassion for them. We feel sorry for them because we see the misery of sin. Again, people that think like that, that says you deserve it, that's why you can just enjoy your pain, has quickly forgotten that they, that they too deserve hell. They too deserve eternal miseries, eternal suffering under God's wrath. We all are in the same boat. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We did not come out of our sin by our own willpower, but by the power of Christ. So instead, we respond, the gospel responds to a, a brother or sister's suffering is compassion. Matthew 9, 36 says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But beloved, here we see the, the key thing you and I must be willing to do if we are to love someone in this way. What does that imply when you come alongside someone and start to carry their burden with them? What is now on your shoulders? A burden, right? To really restore someone is going to cost you something. It's going to make your life more difficult, not easier. And this is probably why we don't do this. Like, that's going to be such a burden for me. Exactly. You should carry that burden. Because our philosophy of, of Christian is not to see how easily we can pass through life without any burdens. 
to try to see how easy our lives can be before we can get to heaven. No, we, our philosophy is to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow him. To die. Someone who is gripped by the gospel of grace doesn't add burdens to others and then are unwilling to help them and lift a finger, but rather like their Savior, they come underneath and they carry their burdens until they are restored to usefulness to Christ and the church. They say, I will walk with you as long as it takes, as long as it is needed, until you are well, until you can start carrying burdens again. And again, that's what I think that law of Christ refers to. I think it specifically refers to that new commandment Jesus gave in John 13, verse 34. Listen to that um, very famous verse. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. We are to love like Jesus. That's the law of Christ. Willingly, perseveringly, costly, unconditionally, affectionately, and sacrificially. That's the law of Christ. So it's worth noting the gospel of grace doesn't mean now you are free to do whatever you want. Okay? So it might be tempting to, when you study Galatians, to say, oh, I'm free from the law. I'm not justified by the law of Moses. So I can now do whatever I want. No, you are freed from the law of Moses and you are bound to the law of Christ. You see? Which is a law of love. You are bound. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You're either a slave of sin or you are a slave of Christ. You're never free in the technical sense of being able to do whatever you want. But you are truly free to be Christ's slave. And that is true freedom. For freedom Christ set you free. Galatians 5 verse 1. Well, let, let me close with a few applications for us. Just two applications as we close our time together. Um, Number one, Christians have the responsibility to be concerned over one another's walk with Jesus. We are we ought to be concerned over one another's spiritual lives. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Someone walking alone is walking in selfishness. When God asked Cain where his brother is after he murdered him, in Genesis 4 verse 9, he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Christians say, yes, we are. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. We are our sister's keeper. We are watching over one another in prayer, in fellowship, in coming. We don't ignore when we see that one of our brothers or sisters are caught in some transgression. And this is where I want to be frank. And this is also where you need to discern whether this is what I'm saying or what the Holy Spirit is saying. So please hear my heart in this. If you are a Christian, if you are someone that is only coming on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon and you are content to never see another Christian in the rest of the week, not go to a Bible study, not to go to invite people over lunch, over supper, to confess your sins to another believer. And especially if that has been your habit for years, then you are disobedient to the Lord. Disobedient to this text. So test yourself right now. Who do you know 
Now, I know some of you are in this church, some of you are not in this church, but who do you know in this church or in your church or where you come from that you regularly meet with, regularly spend time with, to share your heart, to share your burdens, to share your prayer request? Who is praying for you? Who are you studying the Bible together with? Who, is, who are you actively seeking to either disciple or to disciple you? Again, if you're a young Christian, then probably you need to initiate and say, listen, I need to be discipled. I need to walk closer to you that we can share our burdens and that I can walk closer with Jesus. So who are you meeting with to disciple? It can be as simple as, hey, can we meet up once a week, once every two weeks, once a month to just read the Bible, just to pray, just to talk, just to share our burdens together? And let me be quick to add, because it's not always obvious, I'm talking about someone of the same sex as you. Because sometimes it is quite natural and quite easy to find someone to disciple of the opposite sex. And in my experience, that's rarely wise, if ever. Unless you're dating them or unless you're married. <laughs> okay, then that's wholly appropriate. But I'm talking about who are you meeting of the same sex that you are honest with, that you are sharing with, that you are talking with regularly outside of the Sunday meeting. Of course, Sunday is great. We need to commit to our Sundays and our growth groups and those things, but are we actively seeking to disciple one another? Again, you don't need my permission to do this. You don't need, just do it. Of course, it's going to cost you something. Of course, it's gonna, you're going to have to stop doing certain things so that you have more time in your schedule so that you can meet up with people more to disciple them and to be discipled. Of course, you'll need to sacrifice your time and sacrifice your money. And, but that's the point. To carry a burden means your life is heavier, not easier. Again, this is where we need wisdom. We need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and perhaps some counsel. But we need to do it. This is what Christ is calling us to do. And that's the first thing. We need to be concerned with one another. Secondly, and let me close with this, perhaps there is someone here or listening to this sermon who either needs at this moment to be restored or have needed to be restored in the past and you were caught in a transgression and no one has come for you. No one has reached out to you. No one has come in love and you've perhaps experienced the negative side of the judging and the or just the ignoring or just the forgetting. No one has loved you enough to reach out and to carry your burden with you. What do you do? Beloved, listen to me. Don't wait for someone to come. Come to Jesus yourself. Come to Him right now. Listen again to His word in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, heavy laden with sins, heavy laden with your burdens caused by your sin, heavy laden by a broken life because of your sin. You, you, that person, come to me and I will give you rest. Has he not carried our greatest burden already to the cross? He's already carried your sin to the cross. Does he not love you despite the fact that others have not loved you. 
And will he not always love you, even if no one loves you? Can you not rest in the fact that you belong to him first and not find your identity in what, how other people treat you? So listen, don't harden your heart. Even now, God wants to use this, even right now, this moment, to restore you. Perhaps this is all you need to be restored. Don't resist Him. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Humble yourself and come. Chances are that you're probably, there's someone specifically in your mind that you are angry with or bitter towards that you need to forgive. Will you let go of that burden this afternoon? Will you choose to do the hard thing and offer forgiveness that will cost you towards that person? Perhaps it's towards your husband or your wife. Perhaps it's towards another family member that has deeply, deeply hurt you. Perhaps it is towards a church member that has hurt you just too many times. Perhaps it's against your pastor. Perhaps it's against me. I don't know. God knows. But let it go. God wants you to be free. He wants you to live a life of joy, love, peace in the Holy Spirit. That's the life He wants for you. And it's a difficult life. <laughs> it's a difficult life to live like that in His church, His body, His bride, with all of its messiness, with all of its complications, with all of its sins. And yet He calls us to do that gladly, to become like Him. Jesus Christ will carry your every burden as you obey Him to carry others' burdens in love. Let's pray. I'd like to give just a few moments of silent prayer. Let's just reflect and respond and humble ourselves before God. Let's, let's spend some time in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you are the great burden bearer. Lord, you haven't just be, um, carried our burdens, but you are actually carrying us. You're carrying us on your almighty shoulders. And you thank you that you bear us up every day. Lord, please forgive me for sometimes being content to see someone go, to not leave the 99 and to pursue the one that has strayed and one that has lost and one that has stopped coming or stopped serving you in your church and for some reason forgive us for our prayerlessness and forgive us for our laziness lord 
Lord, I pray that we would become and have that attitude, that deep, deep attitude of commitment towards one another, that we are one another's keepers, that like Christ, we want to carry one another's burdens until we are restored. Pray for those who need restoration, Lord, that you would bring them back to Christ. Thank you that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, that your grace is always more than all of our sins. So, Lord, that we would come willingly and come freely and come quickly to you. And if we need help, that we would reach out for help in your church, to reach out for the help of the body. For you have given us the body to carry one another's burdens and help us to fulfill that and to become that church for your name's sake, Lord. Fill us with your spirit and lead us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.